our favorite words at Grace Bible Church. Turn in your Bibles. Turn in your Bibles to Isaiah 61. While the children are making their way out, we'll spend a moment in prayer together. Let's pray. Our Father, we come to you now once again so thankful for the Word of God. That in a book we can hold in our hands, that we can read with very little education, we have come to know the Savior of the world. We have come to know this risen Lord, the one who died on the cross for us, who first condescended to come to this earth as one of us. And so we pray that our time this morning, Lord, would be honoring to you, honoring to our Savior. I pray that you would thrill our hearts with the fact that all through Scripture, beginning as early as the, th- the third chapter of our Bible, you told us of a coming Savior. And this morning will be no different as we see one of these passages that fairly shouts to us that the Savior is coming. From our vantage point, Christ has already come the first time, and yet we're reminded to look to His second coming. And so I pray that you would thrill our hearts with truth this morning. Help us to serve you more, to be obedient members of the church of Jesus Christ. All for His glory we pray. Amen. Jesus began His ministry in and around the northern region of Galilee, it's where he was brought up, the little town of Nazareth. On one particular day, he came back to Nazareth when he had begun his ministry, and he attended the same little modest synagogue that he had grown up in. He had attended this synagogue many times on the Sabbath, only today was different. He was invited to read from the scriptures. The rabbi in charge handed Jesus the scroll of Isaiah. This would have been a sizable scroll. And just for our reference, there were no chapter or verse divisions until about 1,200 years later. And yet without that reference, he unrolled the scroll to the exact point that he wanted almost to the very end. And according to Luke chapter 4, he read this. The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because he anointed me to preach the gospel to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim release to the captives and recovery of sight to the blind, to set free those who were oppressed, to proclaim the favorable year of the Lord. He closed the scroll carefully. He gave it back to the attendant And he sat down. Luke chapter 4 says that the eyes of all in the synagogue were fixed on him. And then he fired the shot heard around the world. He said, today this scripture is fulfilled in your hearing. In other words, the me referred to is him. Jesus was reading primarily from what we know as Isaiah 61. He read a very specific portion, what we have as verse 2, 
and the first one-third, or verse one rather, and the first one-third of verse two. And what he read really describes the ministry he was to have. And when he read this in the synagogue in Nazareth, it was at the beginning of his ministry, and he was reading prophetically that this was beginning, that what Isaiah prophesied was about to happen. But Isaiah prophesied of this ministry of Jesus seven centuries before the birth of Christ. And so as part of our Advent series that we've called Ancient Anticipation, this morning I'd like to look at the prophesied miraculous ministry of Jesus. Because Isaiah tells us what he was going to do. What did Isaiah foresee in the coming Messiah? Isaiah 61. The Spirit of Lord Yahweh is upon me, because Yahweh has anointed me to bring good news to the afflicted. He has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim release to captives and freedom to prisoners, to proclaim the favorable year of Yahweh. Now, you might have noticed a slight variation. Jesus read of recovery of sight to the blind. The Isaiah passage reads, to proclaim release to captives. He may have read from two or more passages that were close to one another, including Isaiah 42, 7, to open blind eyes, to bring out prisoners from the dungeon, to, to those who inhabit darkness from the prison. But the spiritual concept is exactly the same. Opening the eyes of the blind and releasing prisoners, releasing captives, both speak of release from spiritual darkness. But Isaiah 61 was clearly his predominant passage. And what I'd like to show you this morning is that Isaiah predicted, he prophesied in very firm and precise categories what the earthly ministry of Jesus Christ was going to be, what it was going to entail, The ministry of Jesus was his perfect outworking of his father's will to demonstrate that the long-awaited Messiah had in fact come. We do not have a blind faith, and Jesus did not ask anyone to have a blind faith. He demonstrated for three and a half years who he truly is. And he would demonstrate this in firm categories, numerous ways in his ministry and I'd like to use Isaiah 61 to divide his ministry into, into four categories or his miraculous ministry that he did in four ways. I'll give you the list up front. We're going to talk about his preaching, his healing, his liberating, and his protecting. His preaching, his healing, his liberating, and his protecting. And we'll repeat these as we go. The Spirit of Lord Yahweh is upon me. The Spirit of God has come upon Christ, the man, fully God, fully human, and empowered him for his earthly ministry. The first way his miraculous ministry is predicted and shown in his preaching. In his preaching, the Spirit of Lord Yahweh is upon me because Yahweh has anointed me to bring good news to the afflicted. Some translations rightly say to the poor. Isaiah is speaking of spiritual poverty. Jesus didn't come to solve financial problems. The emptiness, the hopelessness of a hollow religious system that saves no one. That's what Judaism had had degenerated into as Israel rebelled against God. So what was the preaching of Jesus that brought good news to the afflicted? Now, at this point, we're going to be traveling throughout the Gospels quite a bit. It's probably a little fast for us to turn to every passage. So let's just consider together the good news, the Gospel that Jesus brought to the afflicted, to the poor. 
The description of his ministry begins with bringing good news to the afflicted, to the poor. It's no coincidence that the very first recorded sermon of Jesus Christ in the New Testament, Matthew 5, he begins, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. What does it mean to be poor in spirit? Simply put, it it describes spiritual helplessness, powerlessness. And Jesus is preaching that this spiritual helplessness is actually cause for blessing. It's cause for joy. And in fact, he asserts that the spiritually helpless are the ones who will be part of the kingdom. The spiritually helpless are those who know that they merit no favor, no kindness, no worthiness at all from God. That they're steeped in the wretchedness of their own sin. They have nothing to offer God whatsoever except their own desolation. And yet Jesus says, blessed are the poor in spirit. Listen, if you were living in this time and you were watching the religious antics and the showy displays of the the Pharisees and the Sadducees, these super religious who made sure that everyone around them knew how pious they were, the average person couldn't possibly make that kind of a show. And so they were most often holding the religious elite in awe. Boy, I I wish I could be like them. And Jesus just gave them the truth that you're not only not like them, you're better than them. Because they're spiritually rich, as it were. You're spiritually poor, and to enter the kingdom, you must be spiritually poor. Their spiritual helplessness is precisely where they needed to be, while the Pharisees will be excluded because of their arrogance. What kind of preaching is this? That in one sentence, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Jesus just opened the gates of heaven to the lowest of the low. In fact, Jesus preached another sermon where he made the same distinction. In English, his sermon is one sentence long. In Mark chapter 2, Mark records the call of Matthew. His Jewish name was Levi to follow Jesus. And Jesus came to Matthew's house and apparently quite, quite a crowd of guests arrived and they were following Jesus now along with Matthew, but the crowd gathered at Matthew's house were the lowest of the low, the sinners of the sinners. They were the tax collectors, otherwise known as government-endorsed thieves. They were the sinners, meaning Jews who were Jews in name only. They were irreligious. They, they, didn't, they ignored the law. They didn't care about tradition, any of that. They were in name only because they couldn't possibly hope to keep up with the Pharisees and the Sadducees, so they gave up. In fact, Mark's gospel says there were many of them. Now, keeping in mind that a dinner at a large home such as Matthew's was outdoors and it was a public spectacle. It was a spectator event. Mark chapter 2, verse 16, when the scribes of the Pharisees saw that he was eating with the sinners and tax collectors, they were saying to his disciples, he is eating and drinking with tax collectors and sinners. Now, for the super religious, they would never do this because they always want to look pious. They always want to look religious. The disciples relayed this message to Jesus and Jesus responded with a short sermon, one sentence in most English translations, yet this one sentence gave hope and certainty to the spiritually poor, to the afflicted. Hearing this, Jesus said to them, Those who are healthy do not have need for a physician, but only those who are sick. 
I did not come to call the righteous, but sinners. Now, don't think for a minute here that Jesus is designating the super religious as truly righteous. He's designating them as those who believe that they're righteous. This is so ironic. Those who wear the long robes all day long with the perfect tassels and they're ironing their, their little tassels and all the things. They, they fast twice a week and they look gloomy and pious. They used to literally put on makeup to make themselves look more pale and more drawn on the days they were fasting. They're not called by Christ But the ones who know they're spiritually sick, spiritually needy, they are called, they are saved, they are forgiven. Jesus continues this theme of calling the lowest of the low. Perhaps his most famous invitation, one that's been repeated millions and millions of times in churches around the world over 20 centuries. An invitation that shows Jesus coming down to the pitiful level of humanity An invitation that shows the omniscient understanding of God, of just how desperate the spiritual need of the unforgiven lost person is. An invitation that excludes no one except the self-righteous. An invitation that is cool water to the soul that's parched by its own sin and degradation. Come to me. Come to me. All who are weary and heavy laden and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and humble in heart, and you will find rest for your souls, for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Only heaven knows how many souls of the poor in spirit have been saved hearing those words. Who knows, perhaps one or two today. What preaching? What preaching? The first way we see the miraculous ministry of Jesus in Isaiah 61, his preaching second way we see his miraculous ministry is his healing. His healing. Through the prophet Isaiah, Messiah speaks once again. Isaiah 61.1, he has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted. Bind up is a word used for bandaging a wound, for, for healing something. And Jesus demonstrated in very tangible, miraculous ways his ability to save. And so often his Healing ministry was directly connected to spiritual salvation from sin. Jesus restoring broken bodies in a perfect and beautiful illustration of restoring a broken soul. Early in Jesus' ministry, one of the most famous instances of healing, I think it's famous simply because of the drama that's involved, is a paralyzed man who was brought to Jesus while he was in a house speaking. The house was packed and No one could get in, and so the man's friends simply took him up the outside staircase to the roof, and they dismantled the roof over Jesus' head and lowered him down. And Jesus knew this man's truest need. Mark 2, verse 5 records, And Jesus, seeing their faith, said to the paralytic, Child, your sins are forgiven. But some of the religious elite, the scribes, They were there as well, and Mark records that they were reasoning in their hearts that Jesus was a blasphemer because only God can forgive sins. Now, if you know your Bible, you you know what happens next. You ever like to just savor a moment that you know is coming? I like to savor moments like that. It reminds me of a delightful, lighthearted moment in sports history back in, I think it was 2010, a 70-year-old 
golfing great Jack Nicholas is playing in a senior PGA tournament and he's just playing for fun at this point. He's a bajillionaire by now and he's standing at the 10th green waiting for a slightly younger Johnny Miller to attempt a 102 foot putt. Keeping in mind that the world record set by Jack Nicholas is 110 feet and so Johnny Miller just stands there looking hopeless and Jack Nicholas kind of throws up his arms and walks over, drops a ball, doesn't take a practice stroke, and just whacks it, and over two slanted hills, drains a 102-foot putt at the age of 70, eight foot short of the world record. And of course, the crowd goes crazy with applause, and that putt has been called the miraculous putt. I like watching that over and over again, because you can see Nicholas walking over, and you already know what's going to happen. That's nothing compared to what Jesus is about to do. I, I, I can't imagine that Jesus didn't have some measure of pleasure knowing what he was about to do. First of all, Jesus, being all-knowing God, knew what the scribes were thinking, and then he blows everybody's minds. Immediately, Jesus, aware in the spirit that they were reasoning that way within themselves, said to them, why are you reasoning about these things in your hearts? So first of all, there's a shock. He just told me what I'm thinking. Which is easier, to say to the paralytic, your sins are forgiven, or to say, get up and pick up your mat and walk. Savor the moment. But so that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins, he said to the paralytic, I say to you, get up, pick up your mat and go home. And he got up and immediately picked up the mat and went out before everyone so that they were all amazed and were glorifying God, saying, we have never seen anything like this. But I want you to notice something. Jesus' first concern was for the soul of the paralyzed man. I want you to notice also that Jesus unilaterally made the decision to save him, just like he unilaterally made the decision to heal him. Mark's gospel also records a desperate woman who had been suffering with an incurable discharge of blood for 12 years. And beyond the physical illness, the weakness, she had an additional burden. It was a spiritual burden. According to Leviticus 15, she was continually, ceremonially unclean. She couldn't worship with others. She couldn't socialize with others. She was constantly isolated. She was considered contaminated. Everything she touched was considered contaminated. This is the worst kind of suffering, physical suffering, combined with shame. Mark 5.28 records that she was saying to herself, if I just touch Jesus' garments, if I just touch his robe, I will be saved from this, from this illness. Her hope was that touching the garment of Jesus would heal her. Now, to be fair, it's actually quite superstitious. She was having as much faith in the garment as she was in Christ, perhaps. So she touched Jesus' garment, and she received immediate healing. Now, something happens that is unique to Mark's gospel. Mark 5, verse 30 says that immediately Jesus, perceiving in himself that the power proceeding from him had gone forth. Now, Jesus walked the earth, possessing the power of God as the representative of the Father, and he was doing only that which the Father willed for him to do. The, The healing was God's free and gracious decision to bestow on this woman the power which was active in Jesus. And you know this, by the way, God honored her faith even though it was tinged with a fair amount of superstition. 
And so Jesus asked, who touched my garments? Who touched my robe? Jesus is looking for the woman. He's not just an instant heal machine. It's not why he's here. He's the son of God. And those who receive his touch must interact with him. Her plan was to slip away unnoticed. But he kept looking around. In fact, Mark 5.32 uses an imperfect verb that means Jesus kept on looking. There was an urgency. There was an insistence. There was a searching for her. Plus, Jesus needed to correct her misconceptions. Mark 5.33 says, The woman, fearing and trembling, aware of what had happened to her, came and fell down before him and told him the whole truth. She fell down and worshipped before Christ. And in awe and in wonder at what just happened to her, she told him the whole truth. She poured out her heart to him. She told of her disease, her humiliation, her sadness. Uh, It's very likely she confessed sin. She confessed her own unworthiness to the Lord, culminating with something to the effect of, I had to touch you. I had to get to you. You're my only hope. And then Jesus makes an amazing statement. Daughter, your faith has saved you. Go in peace and be healed of your affliction. He calls her daughter. This is a term of affection, of family, of endearment. She was almost certainly older than he was, but he includes her in the family. And then he explains to her what really happened. It wasn't the grasp of her hand that saved her. It was her faith. It wasn't superstition. It was belief in the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, this may seem a little repetitive. Your faith has saved you and be healed of your affliction. Why is this so important? Saved you. This is a word that always in the New Testament means spiritual salvation. Salvation from sin. Jesus calls her his daughter because he's just made her unilaterally part of the family of God. He's forgiven her of all of her sins. And oh, by the way, and less importantly, be healed of your disease. And what sweet words Jesus speaks. Go in peace. Go in peace knowing that your physical illness is finished and what you felt in your body is real. But go in peace. It can be translated go into peace. Go into the peace with God. Go into the peace of salvation. Go into the peace of forgiveness. And your mind may be gravitating toward Romans 5.1. Therefore, having been justified by faith, we have what? Peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. A few chapters later in Mark's gospel, Mark records Jesus healing a deaf man, a man who spoke with difficulty. This would be a man who could barely remember what it was like to hear. He hasn't heard himself speak since he was a little child. His speech is degenerated basically into something that's unintelligible. He knows the words in his mind. He just hasn't heard himself speak since perhaps the age of two or three. He's had to enter a world of silence with none of the modern helps available today. In Jesus' time, there's no formal sign language. There are no technological helps and worse the culture generally viewed the deaf as mentally incapacitated possibly under the judgment of God they're treated as if they were that crazy person that every small town seems to have 
The loss of hearing in ancient times was one of the most devastating disabilities because it was a complete loss of meaningful communication. You could be surrounded by people and still be alone. I think a good descriptor of deafness in this time would be enslaved. In fact, this is an illustration that the Bible uses of the problem of sin, spiritual deafness, the enslavement to an inability to hear and respond to a holy God separated by a gulf of your own sinfulness. Well, the man's family and friends brought him to Jesus and begged him to lay his hand on them. They had assumed that Jesus had to lay hands on him since Jesus had done this with others. And maybe it just was that they were coming hoping for some sort of blessing from Jesus not necessarily expecting healing because I guarantee you no one had ever seen a deaf person get better. But whatever they were hoping for, he completely outdid their expectations. The man wasn't born deaf. He lost his hearing early, likely due to one of the many childhood diseases that afflicted so many in the ancient Near East. His speech is unintelligible. He is, for all intents and purposes, cut off. Matthew 7 records, and Jesus took him aside from the crowd by himself and put his finger into his ears. And after spitting, he touched his tongue and looking up to heaven with a sigh, he said to him, Ephatha, that is, be opened. This is one of the most vivid pictures of healing in all of the Gospels. Jesus took him aside from the crowd by himself. The man is deaf. Jesus would have had to communicate with him non-verbally using gestures, using signals, using a smile, whatever he had to do to convey trust and care. The man needed to understand that Jesus meant to help and he ignores the crowd and he pulls him aside by himself. He's communicating with a person who had almost certainly learned to be passive. This is a documented occurrence with many who suffer hearing loss that, that they have no choice but to rely on everyone so much that they become passive. Now, what we just read is a very odd description of what Jesus does. I want to be very clear. Jesus is not healing the man by putting his fingers in his ears or touching his tongue. The healing doesn't happen until Jesus commands, be opened. So what is Jesus doing? He's entering into the world of this man to communicate with him. Pulling the man aside for a private moment, he establishes eye contact with him, and then Jesus communicates with this man in five different ways. First, he he put his fingers in his ears. Jesus is putting his fingers in the man's ears to convey that he's about to do something about this. It may be that he, he stretched open the man's ears, pushing back on them, It has the effect of opening them. He's communicating, I know you can't hear. I'm going to fix it. The second way he communicates with him, after spitting, he touched his tongue. Now, this seems very strange to us. When when you have a cold or something, your friend doesn't come up and say, well, let me spit on my finger and touch your tongue. We say, that's okay, I'm going to go to the doctor. But in both Jewish and Hellenistic tradition, they believed that saliva had healing properties and they weren't germaphobes quite like we are. Jesus is telling him in very clear terms, I'm going to fix this. I'm not just going to fix your ears. I'm going to fix your tongue. 
He's communicating that he would make his tongue alive with his own life. It's the third way he communicated to him. Looking up to heaven. Everybody knows what looking up to heaven means. It is the universal sign for acknowledging God. Yet more nonverbal communication that the source and power to heal was from heaven. That God is about to intervene in this man's life. The fourth way he communicated with him. He sighed. Literally means he groaned deeply. If you put your hand on your own upper chest and go, oh, you can feel it. It is a low frequency vibration that the person next to you can feel if you do it with enough power. It's a groan of compassion, a groan of pity, one that can be felt by this man that Jesus is having compassion on him. The message that Jesus is giving this man, perfectly communicating with the deaf. You are going to hear again. You are going to speak again. This will be from God because God loves you and has compassion on you. And then the final communication with this man. Jesus looked at the man. He made eye contact and said, Ephatha. Aramaic for be opened. And like all deaf people, this man would have Spend his lifetime working to see what people are saying, to read lips as it were. And the last word that this man would ever have to try to decipher in his silence, Ephatha, easily read, easily understood. The deaf were considered uncurable. Only God can heal the deaf. Only God could reverse this permanent condition. And so to make sure that this man understood that Jesus was about to heal his hearing, his speech, that this healing was from heaven, and it was because of Christ's great compassion for him. He communicated tenderly, patiently, compassionately with this man, building anticipation, building hope, building faith. And Mark 7.35 records... And his ears were opened and the impediment of his tongue was removed and he began speaking plainly. Three things happened. His ears were opened. Suddenly sound is entering again. He can hear the crowds all around him, the noises in the background, the birds singing. And for the first time in decades, the sound of his own voice. The impediment of his tongue was removed. Literally, in in Greek, the chain of his tongue was taken off. It is the breaking of bonds, the giving of liberation. He could speak normally again. And the third thing that happened, he, he spoke plainly. No rehabilitation, no relearning. He started talking, and I'll bet he had a lot to say. What was Jesus doing in this tender, slow, painstaking communication with this deaf man? He was giving him faith to believe in Christ. When Jesus said, be opened, grammatically, this is not a command to the ears and the tongue of the man. It's a second person imperative directed to the man himself. Not just start hearing and talking, but you have faith in me. You believe in me. Not just for physical healing, but for spiritual restoration. You see, when God says to a closed off soul, be opened, the soul is always opened. The crowds were astonished that Jesus could make even the deaf to hear and the mute to speak. The message is clear that only Jesus can unstop the spiritually deaf ears. 
Only Jesus can loosen the spiritually mute tongue to worship him and to glorify him. I'll bet that man is still talking in heaven today. Matthew summarizes the healing ministry of Jesus. Matthew 15, departing from there, Jesus went along by the Sea of Galilee and having gone up on the mountain, he was sitting there and large crowds came to him, bringing with them those who were lame, crippled, blind, mute, and many others. And he laid them, they laid them down at his feet and he healed them. So the crowd marveled as they saw the mute speaking, the crippled restored, the lame walking and the blind seeing, and they glorified the God of Israel. It's the third way we see the miraculous ministry of Jesus. His liberating. His liberating. Isaiah continues in Isaiah 61.1 to proclaim release to captives and freedom to prisoners. Perhaps the most tangible expression of spiritual bondage that Jesus dealt with was the bondage of demon oppression, demonic power, demonic possession. The New Testament mentions Jesus healing demonic oppression or casting out demons, fallen angels from people some 50 times and gives us several detailed accounts. But his most famous releasing of someone from demonic power was the release of a man possessed by many demons at one time. This is recorded in Matthew 8, in Mark 5, and in Luke 8. Jesus comes to the country of the Gerasenes, at the south shore of the Sea of Galilee, in an area known as the Decapolis, meaning the Ten Cities. These are Hellenistic cities, this group of ten cities that were almost exclusively Gentile. Now Matthew's Gospel mentions two men. Mark highlights the worst of the two in his shorter account. Demonic activity was rampant, especially while Jesus was on earth. Uh, the Bible emphasizes the most demonic activity on earth at two points, at the first coming of Christ and at the second coming of Christ. The condition of this man was pathetic. He lived among the tombs. These were carved out caves in the hills. He was screaming and he was gashing himself, cutting himself with stones. This is an attempt to relieve the emotional distress he's under. He was well known in the community. You didn't let your children go play near the tombs. His hair was matted together. His face was unshaven. He was foaming and frothing at the mouth. Blood was flowing from his body, from his self-inflicted wounds. The clanging of chains could be heard, left over from the various times people unsuccessfully attempted to chain him, to shackle him. He didn't wear any clothes. He didn't live in a house. He lived in the tombs. He lived in caves. He was more like a wild animal than a person. And he was, by necessity, totally rejected by the community. He was living an unbearable existence. He's crying, he's screaming, he's cutting himself. Or, or to put it this way, he was a monster. He was the stuff of nightmares, the stuff of horror movies. We are created in the image of God. We are image bearers. We reflect the qualities of God that he himself has. This demonic possession distorted and destroyed the divine likeness to God. It stole his humanity. He was hopelessly lost. Or if I could put it this way, he was living a foretaste of hell on earth. This demon-possessed man is just living the full outworking of what sin really looks like, completely dominated by evil. 
He saw Jesus from a distance. He ran up to Jesus. He bowed down before him. It seems likely that this was the effort of the man, but now the demons speak. Mark 5, 7, crying out with a loud voice, he said, What do I have to do with you, Jesus, Son of the Most High God? I implore you by God, do not torment me. Now here's what's interesting. In Mark's gospel, Mark gives the demons answer first. What do I have to do with you? The reason comes next because Jesus had been saying, Come out of the man, you unclean spirit. The demons know Christ. They affirm his deity because he created them as once angels of light. Jesus then asks its name. And it said, My name is Legion, for we are many. Jesus is forcing the demons to identify themselves. He already knew them. And as a show of power over them, they must obey. A Roman legion had 6,000 soldiers. It doesn't necessarily mean there's literally 6,000 demons. It just shows the severity of the possession. But we know there were at least 2,000 demons because Jesus sent them into a a herd of 2,000 pigs. The demons began begging Jesus to not send them away. They wanted to delay their inevitable coming judgment. Matthew's account includes the demons saying, Have you come here to torment us before the time? Before what time? The time at the end of the great tribulation when Christ will consign Satan and all of his demons to the abyss, to the place of imprisonment in Revelation 20. And so they beg, send us to the pigs instead. So Jesus did this. Now, I heard a sermon once called The Amazing Compassion of Jesus. And they used this text. And I about came out of my chair when I heard that the application was that Jesus has compassion even on demons. They wanted to go to the pigs. And he said, sure, I'll have compassion on you. This was not an act of compassion by Jesus. It was an act of demonstration of his power and authority over evil that you will go where I tell you to go and win. And by now, many people are watching this. This is a prolonged confrontation. And now at the command of Jesus, the unclean spirits enter the herd of pigs. And you know how this ends. The pigs rush down a steep bank into the sea, about 2,000 of them, and they were drowned in the sea. What a picture All at once in front of a crowd, the the man is suddenly normal and this massive herd of pigs stampedes into the sea. I can only imagine the awful sight, sound, and smell of 2,000 pigs drowning at the same time. Jesus isn't surprised by this. He did this on purpose. And by the way, this shows us something theologically. The ultimate intention of those demons was to destroy the man. It was only the grace of God withholding this destruction until such time as Jesus could arrive so that Jesus could come and give him grace. No such grace was given to the pigs. The demons immediately carried out their intention to destroy anything that comes in their path. It is only God's grace that allows anyone to stay alive long enough to be saved, just so you know. By now, the crowds of people are watching. You would think they would come to faith in Christ by the thousands. You would think this would be a Billy Graham crusade moment. Instead, the crowds, quote, began to plead with him to leave. 
And so Jesus began getting back into the boat. The one man, the formerly demon-possessed man, was pleading with Jesus to let him go with him. Isn't that ironic? The people would rather have had the demons than Jesus, and the one who had the demons would rather have Jesus. So the saved man, and, and we understand this, is begging Jesus, take me with you. Take me with you. Mark 5 records, he did not let him. But he said to him, go home to your people and report to them what great things the Lord has done for you and how he had mercy on you. And he went away and began to preach in the Decapolis what great things Jesus had done for him. And everyone was marveling. Great things, plural. He saved me from the demons and he saved me from my sin. And everyone was marveling. The man in the garrisons, formerly demon-possessed, is a Gentile. Jesus sends out the first Gentile evangelist to proclaim salvation to all. It's the fourth way the miraculous ministry of Jesus has shown in Isaiah 61 his protecting is protecting. We've seen his preaching, his healing, his liberating, and now his protecting. Isaiah 61 declares that Messiah will come to proclaim the favorable year of Yahweh. What does it mean when you have the favor of God? Biblically, it means you have the protection of God. That everything you touch turns to gold. That you're safe. You are secure. You're protected. For God to show you favor is part and parcel of showing you protection And how did Jesus demonstrate protection? How did he demonstrate what being with him in his future kingdom would be like? He walked on water, showing what the dominion of mankind over the earth could look like. Peter even tried it successfully for a moment. We always kind of put Peter down for sinking. Well, how about no one else tried it? Jesus calmed raging seas, showing that nature would no longer try to kill mankind in the future kingdom. He fed 5,000 men plus women and children. Miraculously, he fed 4,000 men plus women and children. Miraculously, showing how the Heavenly Father provides for his own, protects his own, and demonstrating the greater spiritual food of the bread of life, Jesus himself. So many ways he demonstrated protection. But the ultimate protection, the ultimate favor of God, Jesus demonstrated repeatedly to his people to show what true favor from God looks like to a dead little girl. Jesus took her hand and said, Talitha kum, Aramaic for little girl, I say to you, arise. To the dead, only son of a widow, In his coffin, about to be buried, Jesus said, Young man, I say to you, arise. And to his own dead friend, Lazarus, dead already in the tomb, four days when decay should have begun to set in, Jesus cried out with a loud voice, Lazarus, come forth. The one who claimed to be the resurrection and the life gave resurrection and life. The ultimate protection. It is so protective. It is so complete that the Apostle Paul gives the spiritual equivalent of when he says, O death, where is your victory? O death, where is your sting? And death is swallowed up in victory. For 20 centuries, Christians have been laughing at death. 
For 20 centuries, martyrs on their way to be killed for their faith have literally laughed and danced a jig. Martyrs in the 16, early 16th century had the habit of kissing the stake at which they were about to be burned. Of taking some of the wood and giving it a kiss and an embrace. Oh, death, where is your victory? What protection? Isaiah predicted the ministry of Jesus. His preaching, his healing, his liberating, his protecting. But now we have to go back to the modest synagogue in Nazareth. Jesus has just read from Isaiah 61 and proclaimed that in him all these things are fulfilled. Jesus proclaimed then that his hometown as representative of the entire nation of Israel, was going to reject him. And he gives examples from Israel's history of times that God turned away from unfaithful Israelites to Gentiles, which was exactly what Jesus was getting ready to do. And immediately, the people of Nazareth demonstrated just how right Jesus was. Luke 4 records that all the people in the synagogue were filled with rage as they heard these things Then they stood up and drove him out of the city and led him to the edge of the hill on which their city had been built in order to throw him down the cliff. But passing through their midst, he went on his way. Because in the sovereign plan of God, Messiah would be rejected by his own people, rejected by Israel. But someday he is coming to inflict justice on all who reject him to restore Israel to faith and to be a blessing as he rules all the nations. You're familiar with Isaiah 61. You see, Isaiah 61 continues right where the first coming of Christ left off and jumps right to his second coming. Isaiah 61, 2, to proclaim the favorable year of Yahweh, first coming, and the day of vengeance of our God, second coming, and... He will grant salvation to the, unre- to, to the repentant in Israel to comfort all who mourn, to grant those who mourn in Zion, giving them a headdress instead of ashes, the oil of rejoicing instead of mourning. And he'll be a blessing to all as he rules the nation. Isaiah 61, verse 11. He rules the nation of Israel. And all the world, for as the earth brings forth its branches, as a garden causes the things sown in it to branch out, so Lord Yahweh will cause righteousness and praise to branch out before all the nations. You see, Jesus' first coming happened exactly as was prophesied in the Old Testament. You know what that tells you? You know what that tells me? That Jesus second coming will happen exactly as prophesied in the Old Testament. We do not have a blind faith. We have a faith in a Savior who has made himself known in every page of Scripture. And I pray that this season, whether you're here or listening online, that this would be the season that you take for yourself the benefits of the first coming of Christ which led to the cross so that you might also share in the benefits of the second coming of Christ, and that is to be with him in his kingdom forever and ever. Amen? Let's pray together. Our Father, we are thankful to you 
that many hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of times even before the birth of Christ you fairly shouted that the Messiah, the Savior was coming. And in the century following Christ you gave us a New Testament to shout that the Messiah has come and is coming back. And in the 2,000 years since The church of Jesus Christ has been the beacon of light, has been the container of salt to the world to light the way to heaven, to light the way to the cross. I pray for all who know you, all who have come to saving faith in Christ, that we would proclaim the gospel to our own hearts each and every day, that we would remember Christmas, we would remember the cross, We would remember the resurrection. We would remember the ascension. We would remember the advocacy. And we would remember the soon coming second coming. And I pray for all who do not know the Savior. I can think of no better season to come to faith in Christ than the day that we celebrate His birth. Come to me, all who are weary, and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. We embrace that invitation, and we ask you, Father, that many would receive it. We pray these things in Christ's name, and all to his glory. Amen.